This morning we're continuing to think about the kingdom and the church. And over the next three Sundays, I'm going to be preaching some sermons that, that are, I hope, will, will function as pegs in the wall, so to speak. The kingdom is a, kingdom is a, a huge concept. And my goal is just to give you some, uh, some pegs that you can, uh, around which you can draw connections that will help us all grow in our understanding of the kingdom. Several uh, years ago, in fact, uh, just really about three years ago, I had the privilege of becoming acquainted uh, with a, a distinguished scientist, a, a chemist, or his field was chemistry. I shouldn't say that he's a chemist, but he's uh, uh, a distinguished uh, scientist in the field of theoretical chemistry. And in the course, uh, he was retired when I met him. He was actually in his 90s but he still kept an office at Purdue University and he would go down to his office every day. As I visited with him about his work, I said, what do, you, what do you do when you go to your office? And he said, well, I'm working on a book, co-authoring a book with a colleague in Europe somewhere. He explained that uh, he was writing, they were writing an introduction to their particular uh, field in the, the study of theoretical chemistry. The goal being, to, to help scientists, you know, it wasn't the Reader's Digest introduction to this field, but it was to help scientists begin to grasp a, a little bit of what they were working on so that they might, uh, might be able to step into the field with, or approach the field, just get a, an entry into the field with a, a little more confidence. So I asked him, I, I said, well, is this, are you revising a previous work or are you updating the knowledge? Science is always updating his knowledge. And he said, no, there's, a, there's no introduction written to our field. Uh, there, there is no, there's no book that people can go to and, and learn what it might, to, what we're about really. And of course, I wasn't going to ask him anything about science, but I, I, uh, I've read a lot of books, and, and so I pursued the conversation, and, and I said, well, if, um, if there's no book that introduces it, how do people learn it? How do people get to the place where they, they understand what you understand and are able to do the kind of work that you do? His answer was, uh, well, to, to do what we do, you have to find somebody who understands it and who's willing to take you on uh, sort of as an apprentice, and you, you work with that person for some length of time, and in some instances, the people who do this, while they're doing it, the light goes on, the light goes on, and they get it. The light goes on, and they get it. As I thought about that, I thought that's a, that is a wonderful description of Christian discipleship, a description of what it means to be a disciple whose heart is set on the kingdom of God, what it means to be a disciple who is seeking the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is very, uh, kingdom of God is hard to compress. In, in fact, uh, if you look in scripture for a definition of the kingdom of God, you will not find one. There, there is a, the scriptures are about the kingdom, but nowhere in scripture can you just find a verse or a paragraph in, uh, in which 
it's spelled out, this is the kingdom. Here's what we're dealing with. It's, it's there, it's uh, turned over and over and inside out and approached from many different perspectives. And of course, there are lots of passages where, where uh, it will say the kingdom is thus and such. St. Paul says in, in, to the Romans, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But that's not a comprehensive definition of the kingdom. And the parables give all sorts, you know, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure hidden in the field. And uh, he goes and sells everything that he has because he's so excited just that he wants to get the treasure. All sorts of ways that the kingdom is presented. But there's never, you'll never find a, the kind of def definition that we would long for or that we are accustomed to in, in our way of thinking that wraps it up and ties it up neatly for us. Instead, people, people learn the kingdom in, in the way that my, my friends, uh, colleagues learn science. They hang out with people who know it. And in the course of hanging out with them, sometimes the light goes on and we, and we get it. With the disciples, with the disciples, it took a while for the light to go on. In fact, the light for the disciples uh, really does not go on until the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit uh, is poured out on the church. And, and there you can see that they finally get it. But in our, our scripture texts, uh, we're, going to, we're going to see that it took even, even after Jesus, even after the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, they're still, they're still struggling to get it entirely. So we're, we're going to look first at a a passage from the prophet Isaiah, because the kingdom of God is, is a theme that starts in Genesis and, and, and takes us through Revelation. But Isaiah the prophet talks about the people of God being witnesses to the kingdom. And so we're going to start with a, uh, by looking at a text from Isaiah chapter 43. And I'm going to begin the reading at verse 10. Can, can you advance the slide? I, there we are. Thank you. Um, Isaiah 43 at verse 10. The Lord is speaking to his people. You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration, and I am God. You are my witnesses, the Lord says to his people, and my servant. So after the resurrection, Jesus is meeting with his disciples. and We read about this in Acts chapter 1. He, the servant of the Lord, is giving them uh, final instructions. And in these final instructions, which we read about in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, uh, Jesus relates what he has done to the, the kingdom so that... If you'd like to follow as we read from Acts chapter 1, we'll read the first three verses. 
I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Just two quick comments on that text. Uh, the book of Acts reminds us that the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are about what Jesus began to do and teach. But he's, he's still at work. He's still teaching. He is still, uh, as it were, uh, reigning and bringing about the, uh, the coming of the kingdom in the world. So the, the, first, the first book was about what Jesus began to do and teach, and this is the sequel. This is what Jesus continued to do and teach through the apostles and the, in the power of the Spirit. Over the, the time period between his resurrection and ascension, it says that he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. If you go to the very end of the book of Acts, the, the book of Acts ends with St. Paul, the missionary, in prison in Rome, he's under house arrest, I should say, in Rome. And what, we, what Luke tells us about Paul in the very last line of the book of Acts is that he was uh, teaching people about the kingdom of God and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So the book of Acts begins and ends with uh, the principal characters speaking about the kingdom of God. And it, the book of Acts is about the planting of churches. So when we talk about kingdom and church, we're talking about the relation, what, what the church's task and responsibility is with, relation, with respect to the kingdom. Continuing uh, then, let's move on to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Amen. I'd like to accomplish just a, a few limited objectives in, in this message. First, I'd like us to remember what it is to be a witness. Uh, as God's people, uh, the, the continuation of God's people from Old Testament into New Testament God has given us the calling, God has given us the, the, the privilege of being his witnesses. To be a witness is a, a term that's drawn from a court setting. Witnesses uh, are called to court to give testimony in, a, in some sort of adjudication. And there are typically two sides, and one side presents its witnesses, and the other side presents uh, its witnesses. And there is a decision rendered by the judge, or in our case, by the jury, uh, based on what, what seems to be the case as it's manifest and, and attested by the witnesses. 
The prophets in the Old Testament use this metaphor of the court a lot because when when the Lord uh, chastises his disobedient people, often the language is that of, of the Lord taking his people to court. He takes his people to court because they have broken his covenant and because they have, uh, they have bought into the lie that there are other gods. And in these court settings, the Lord appears. And in Isaiah chapter 43, particularly, he, uh, he, calls upon his, he calls upon those who worship idols. He says, bring your witnesses forth. Who are the people that can speak for, for the idols? Who are the people who can testify that the the idols are able to declare the end from the beginning? That the idols are able to tell us uh, how the world works. And that the idols are able to uphold uh, and sustain uh, lives and and people and and nations. In Isaiah chapter 43 that we uh, just read, uh, the Lord says to his people, You are my witnesses. And you are the ones who know that I, I alone am the God who has declared and saved and acted on behalf of his people. And so he asks them to step forth and to testify along with the servant of the Lord. In the New Testament, we see some important examples of, of witnesses in this same vein. Jesus appears as the servant of the Lord. Jesus is made known to us, he's referred to by the the early church as the faithful witness. There's a beautiful uh, salutation to the opening letters of the book of Revelation, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is coming and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. We also meet, for example, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he came, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. And we, we know how he did that. He, he went out and he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And when the bearer of the kingdom appears, John displays this great humility. Uh, I'm not worthy to, to stoop down and untie his sandal strap. When we think about what it means to be a witness in the New Testament, there's, uh, if, you, if you think about the phrase, taking the stand, I think that will help you grasp all you need to know. So that a witness, as, as we know, and as has always been the case, uh, whether there was a, a literal stand to take, like uh, in our courts where there is a witness stand, but a witness is someone who takes the stand. A witness is someone who takes the stand to speak the truth about what they have seen and heard. The witness doesn't get up there to tell you their life story or share interesting things about themselves. The witness is there to, to speak about something that concerns some other, some, some issue uh, to the understanding of which they can contribute uh, a word of, of uh, truth. So a witness is someone who takes the stand and speaks the truth about what they have seen and heard. But a witness in the New Testament is not just someone who necessarily takes the stand. A witness in the New Testament is someone who takes a stand, 
relative to the truth that, uh, that they are testifying about. In other words, a, a witness may be implicated in the things that they are talking about. So if you are called as a witness to God's kingdom, you implicate yourself as, as one who is interested in this. You implicate yourself as one who, uh, who is committed to this kingdom. So that to bear witness in the New Testament, to bear witness, for example, that Christ is Lord, that he is King, and kings, king of kings and Lord of lords, implicates yourself in a, a greater, greater matter, which may be costly. It may be costly. So a witness takes the stand, but in taking the stand, the witness may be taking a stand that could be very costly. Martin Luther famously, as, as Martin Luther was put on trial for heresy and knew that his, the answer that he gives to the Inquisition or to the tribunal could cost him his life, he says, here I stand, here I stand. The, the Greek word for witness is martus, and it comes into English as martyr. A martyr is a witness who takes a stand, and even at the cost of, of her life. What are the qualities of witness? Chosen by Christ. Christ chooses his witnesses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's very own, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A witness is someone chosen by Christ. Christ has chosen his church to be his witness. Qualities of a witness, I think there are many, but I would emphasize that two arise to the top of the list. The first is humility. I remember John the Baptist. He is the greatest of the prophets, Jesus says, but his task is to say, it's not me, it's not about me, it's about Christ, and I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal straps. And even Jesus, and he is, he, he is the one who gives the good confession, but when he is reviled in court, he does not revile back. He entrusts himself to the Heavenly Father. He comes into, he, his witness is that of one who has already prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. So there is a humility in Christian witness. We give an answer to those who ask us, but we do it with meekness, not with a sense of entitlement, but with a sense of meekness because we've been called by Christ. And, hum, and uh, humility and truth. So that it's pretty important. Everybody wants a truthful witness. And it is important that uh, God's people in giving witness speak the truth. Proverbs 6, 16, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven that are an abomination. Verse 2, proud look, lying tongue. Those who speak for the kingdom of God, uh, it is important that they be called by Christ and that they have his humility and his truth. I'd like to uh, make an observation about the... Uh, inefficiency of this whole arrangement. Does it not strike you as incredibly inefficient? Kind of absurd, really, that, that God, the Creator, would use us to be His witnesses? Why, why wouldn't God just 
manifest God's self in some way and say, here I am. I'm God. I'm your creator. I'm your redeemer. Here's what I'd like you to do. And you can call on me as your father. You can call on me and I'll help you. Uh, Wouldn't that be a lot more uh, compelling? Wouldn't that be a lot more effective? But that is not God's way. He uses this seemingly uh, inefficient approach. There are two things that we could say about that. First, it's to be reminded that, that God, is, uh, God is utterly holy and righteous. He is, uh, his glory is beyond reckoning. And were we to, to be put in face-to-face with that, we would be undone. Isaiah has a vision of this in the temple. He, sees, uh, he has a vision of the Lord and he says, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord. Not much hope for me. So there is, when we think about God using human witnesses, there is a grace and a mercy in this. There is a grace and a mercy in this that uh, God, does, God does not come to us in a way that would overwhelm us and, and destroy us. Also in using human witnesses, and, re- and remember that God overcomes this by becoming flesh. The word becomes flesh, the glory. And the, the glory that we behold is a, a glory that we can see and look upon, full of grace and truth. But by using human witnesses, I believe God creates room for faith. God creates room for faith. We don't discover the kingdom of God. We don't discover salvation. We don't discover our God through scientific study. Uh, the way my chemist friend does. God is a personal God. We don't come to know people by running scientific experiments. We can learn about people by doing that generally. But I can't get acquainted with you individually by doing experiments. You would have to let me know about yourself. And when God uses uh, human witnesses... The, the issue then becomes, can I believe this witness? Is this witness credible? So that when God is pleased to use us to bear witness, uh, we, re- we realize that, that God, is, God is pleased by faith. Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And God chooses to make himself known through others like us who will speak on God's behalf and thus once again the character of the witness becomes critically important. Part of the unraveling that we see in our societies, nobody trusts anyone. People people no longer trust uh, what you hear on the TV, they no no longer trust what you hear on the radio, Uh, they read the news, and, and they're not sure if it's reliable. And, so, and the, the society is, is sort of uh, increasingly uh, in a, a state of chaos because no one is really sure that they can believe anything that they hear. The church has a wonderful opportunity in, in the midst of the brokenness of our world to be people that you can trust. And the only way that happens, of course, is that if people get to know you, Trust isn't something that you get by uh, starting a website and putting your views out there. 
Trust is something that happens out of relationships where you consistently present yourself as a person of humility and truth over time. Let's say one, uh, just one illustration of that very quickly. You may, you may recall the story of Peter and Cornelius. Peter is given a vision about unclean food uh, to teach him that, uh, to prepare him to go speak to a Gentile. Cornelius is a Gentile who wants to know how to please God. And an angel comes to Cornelius and says, what you need to do is send for Peter, and he will tell you. Well, here's an angel. An angel could have told Cornelius the plan of salvation, but God says, sends an angel to Cornelius so that he can send for Peter, whom God is preparing. And when, uh, when Peter comes and preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and a church service starts, <laughs> effectively. And if we could uh, move on, I have a, a quote to kind of wrap things up from a theologian named John Webster, who sadly passed away a year or so ago. But uh, John Webster, in, in one of his books, makes this statement, which I think is a, a, a wonderful way to get a, a grasp of, of what we are called to do in order to bear witness. Webster writes, the church is the form of common human life and action which is generated by the gospel to bear witness to the perfect word and work of the triune God. And he, he would not uh, take any dispute with uh, substituting kingdom of God for God's perfect word and work. But notice Notice that the, uh, the church is, uh, is people who share life together. They, they work together. But it, they do this because this was not their idea. That the gospel constrains this. The gospel, uh, there is something in the gospel that leads to this and brings it about. And it's all for the purpose of bearing witness to the, to the grace and mercy and the majesty of God, uh, God our King. So if you ask, well, how is it that we are to be witnesses? Do we, do we need a special program, a, a program about witnessing? Well, that, that probably wouldn't hurt. But if, if Webster is right, if John Webster is right, the most effective thing that the church can do to bear witness is to be the church. The most effective thing that the church can do to bear witness is to be the church to be this people who, are, who uh, are given life together by the gospel, to be the people who gather to worship, to be the people who pray the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever. We, we live in a time when the church does not enjoy the prestige that it once did, but no matter no matter. There, there is no more powerful witness than the gathering together of people to point to the living God. Not, not together just because, well, this helps me get through the week, but because the Creator and the Redeemer is worthy of all praise, and our desire is that even in the, the act of worship, which is hard hard in the time when we can't get together, but even tuning in, even setting this time apart, is a way of saying to the world, the Lord reigns. Blessed be his name.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we thank you that, uh, that you have set Christ before us and that you have called us to walk the road with other disciples. We thank you that in this way, uh, we are not tasked with learning it all at once, that we are not accountable to have it all nailed down, but that we can be people who travel uh, the path of Jesus and who grow in our appreciation of the richness of his kingdom. Lord, write these words on our hearts and may they continue to speak to us uh, today and as we recall them throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.